Our next segment, Underground History, continues our focus into Native American Heritage Month. We'll learn about the use of imaging technology in archaeological sites so that Modoc Nation members in Oklahoma can experience their ancestral homelands in the Klamath Basin. Here's host Chelsea Rose with the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month, sometimes more, we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, we are talking creative problem-solving. I'm joined in the studio by Ken Sandusky, Modoc Nation's Homeland Director, and Dan Brockman, archaeologist with the Klamath Falls Field Office of the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. And we are discussing the innovative collaboration between archaeologists and the Modoc Nation that's using technology to connect tribal members with their ancestral homelands, some for the first time. Currently based in Oklahoma, the Modoc Nation is the descendant community of the men and women who were forcibly removed from their ancestral homelands in Southern Oregon and Northern California during the Modoc War. Ken and Dan, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. So let's start with a little background context. We just passed the 150th anniversary of the Modoc War. I think into June was the was the anniversary or the commemoration, I guess. And Ken, do you want to give us a little overview, um, like a brief overview of the legacy of that conflict and how folks ended up being relocated so far away from their homelands? Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're currently in the 150th year. So this at this time, 150 years ago, they were rounding these people up. And, you know, soon we'll be commemorating the execution of Captain Jack and the three others. And so it was an ongoing struggle. And in many ways to this day, after forcing the Modoc people to watch the hangings of Captain Jack and the, the three others, they were loaded onto cattle cars and sent to the Quapaw Indian Agency in northeastern Oklahoma. And why Oklahoma? Indian Territory. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm an Oklahoma Choctaw uh-huh. member and descendant, and uh, that's where we were sent when they didn't want us where we were created. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so you have been working with the tribe since uh, 2021, is that correct? That's correct. And you are the first person to be based in the ancestral homeland to represent the tribe, like on the ground. Is that yeah, there had been some uh, activities prior to my recruitment, and um, I had worked with the Modoc Nation uh, in my role with the Forest Service. But as far as full-time employees, uh, upon the purchase of the properties, they needed some folks around here to manage those, but then also to, to help manage their return and their you know regaining of a stake in the in the homelands issues and communities. Yeah. So in addition to kind of just making sure to manage the resources that are within their ancestral lands, the goal is to have a, a more of a physical footprint here again. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. They had bought a number of properties, and uh, some of those required less stewardship than others. But then I think you're, you have your finger on this wider stewardship uh, desire just to, you know, uh, reinstate their ability to, to make sure that the land is healthy and the people are also healthy. And so this whole co-stewardship mentality that we're seeing and we're going to talk about today is 
part of the reason I was recruited in the service of the Modoc Nation. Yeah, and before we get into the project itself, and, and Dan, I'll have you introduce that. I mean, I've been to Oklahoma, and it's pretty different from <laughs> from like the Klamath Basin. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be um, one of the more interesting parts of this is like, again, introducing folks that haven't been here to this landscape and this environment. So Dan, how are you doing that? <laughs> so, you know, as, as has been very much in the news, um, our Secretary of in- Interior, Secretary Holland, has really pushed for inclusivity and for co-stewardship and co-management of our public lands with the tribes whose ancestral homelands these are. And so we've really been looking for a way that we can help, that we can get in and, and, you know, as a federal land management agency, that we can really help bring these lands back to the people whose they are. And in this case, my work partner and fellow archaeologist, Sarah Boyko, has been doing the tribal liaison work for our office. And she's been reaching out very vigorously to the Klamath tribes and also uh, to the Modoc Nation. So we were we were very excited when finally after, you know, Ken got involved, uh, we were able to get a meeting uh, with the Modoc Nation and, and Ken showed up at our office and boy, you know, I, I don't know what we were thinking when we first started. I think we were thinking probably, you know, we had eh, half an hour to talk about stuff and I think we went for three hours. Um, and that brings me to your point, which is uh, one of the things that Ken said in our in our first meeting was, you know, we we know that many of these uh, ancestral descendant community members have never been able to to come here to to witness and to be a part of their homeland, and so Ken said, you know, I'm thinking if we could do some sort of maybe some imaging of some of these sites, and uh, you know, Ken Ken was just saying that he uh, he left that deliberately vague because he was thinking, yeah, you know, get some photographs or something like that, and uh, it just started ringing in my head and in in the head of my work partner Sarah and we're like imaging wait a minute We've we have we have the technology yeah. exactly <laughs> and so we reached out to our national operations center uh, at the BLM and they were kind enough to send a couple of guys to help us to learn lidar and close range photogrammetry and so the lidar is basically we can walk around with this device that shoots beams out and has them bounce back and creates digital three-dimensional models of the landscape. And we've talked a lot about airborne lighter on the show, but this is handheld lighter. So you're not in a plane, you're walking around with it just scanning exactly. the world around you. And one of the one of the big benefits of that is of course when you're in the plane, one of your problems is all the veg and the and the big trees. And the nice thing with the handheld lidar is we're under the trees. Yeah. And so, you know, we're able to really, you know, for a lot of the the sites that have rock rings or have uh, you know petroglyphs that are covered with vegetation, we're able to get right up close to them and really get a great scan on what's going on in there. Yeah, that is amazing. And you know, talking about having Ken in the room, I mean, we all are coming out of the COVID era where we were on Zoom for Forever, and I think everybody is recognizing the the benefit of like the more immersive experiences, like being in the same space. Like today, you're in the studio with me today, which is so awesome because usually I just have guests on the phone. But so you get so much more out of that. And so if you can't physically bring folks to the site, now technology can better bring the sites to them through scanning. And in fact, you can see more detail with go. rock art than um, in person with the scans, right? Exactly. And well, and that's, um, so the LIDAR is one of the techniques. The other one that I mentioned, the close range photogrammetry, that one actually allows us to create three-dimensional photorealistic models. And so that's the one that we can VR enable. And we're 
actually really hoping to, uh, our management in the Klamath Falls field office has embraced this and is allowing us to really delve even deeper because we've created some models that we were actually able to premiere just this last week with uh, some of the folks with the Modoc Nation in Oklahoma and kind of, they're mind-blowing because it really enables you to, I mean, you feel like you can touch it and you can, you know, okay, here's this petroglyph panel. Okay, I've got a flat picture of it. And then you see the photogrammetry, close-range photogrammetry model, and it's like, no, man, I feel like I'm next to it. And I can spin it around and, oh, wait a minute, there's a detail. I want to zoom in. I want to I want to really get close to that. And so we're really hoping that we can, what we talked about when we did this, and we, we kind of premiered it. These are preliminary results, so we're, we're trying to make it better. But um, we did what we're sort of referring to as a guided tour of these three preliminary sites that we started with, and we're hoping that we'll be able to bring it to folks in the Modoc Nation in a larger format, you know, have more people in more of a theater-like setting, that we can have a number of elders and a number of other ancestral descendant community members who can really experience that. And the next step is, of course, if we can get this into virtual reality, um, you know, and be able to get people into it, you know, it's really... It's important, I think, to know these will be closed sessions where the tribal leadership will be very selective and, you know, we're not going to make these kind of things public. I also wanted to add, we're talking about bringing these images to remove descendants, but we're also seeing things that you just can't see with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So images that maybe no Modoc descendants have ever seen are coming to light. And so that has ramifications beyond just the Modoc nation to, to really any Modoc descendant and researchers. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with Ken Sandusky and Dan Brockman about their collaboration aimed at improving access to the ancestral lands of the Modoc Nation for tribal members living thousands of miles away. So I want to follow up on that, like this idea that you are now creating um, – you know, data for archaeologists as well as like, you know, an experience for tribal members, but also there's a lot of knowledge holders out there in Oklahoma that that's, you know, being able to bring the site to them allows an opportunity for more collaboration than you probably have had in the past if you really can kind of take a tour of these sites with folks. And that's something that we, we've we actually, um, we've had the very good fortune of um, one of the Modoc tribal elders who actually does live here locally, Debbie Riddle, she has kindly agreed to take us to several sites and offer the descendant community interpretation of what these sites actually are. And the one that's kind of mind-blowing to us is um, there's, a, there's a petroglyph site um, that exists in lands that are managed up in our direction, up in the Klamath Basin, and it's four rows of kind of uh, stick figures that have been pecked into the rock, and they're holding hands. And so subsequently, it's always been referred to as the people holding hand site, or just the holding hand site. And so, you know, okay, great. You know, it's a, it's a site of people holding hands. And, and uh, Debbie said, well, you know, let's let's go out there. And, and she, she took us out there. And the first thing we did when we got there was she took us, and in the top row of the figures, just to the right of center, there's one figure that's wearing a flat, wide-brimmed hat with kind of a bowler top. And nobody had ever really noticed this before. You know, I mean, it's, it's of course, documented in photographs and 
and stuff, but nobody commented upon it before. And Debbie's interpretation is that this figure, and if you if you look this up online, the picture will come up immediately, represents Native American man named Wavoka, who is Paiute, and he inspired the revival of the ghost dance. So that's kind of thought of as the second ghost dance uh, revival. Um, and the idea was that if people were able to do the dance properly and do the dance with the with the appropriate passion and the appropriate sacrifice and ceremony, that they could restore native dignity, not just that, but... Bring back the dead. Bring back the dead. And the oppressors would be cast out of the land and that which was native would be restored. And also it would make you impervious to bullets, which unfortunately doesn't turn out well. <laughs> but we, we had an understanding of that history and we, we knew this petroglyph as the people holding hands petroglyph, but never had we been able to connect those two before. And so it's just fantastic that now we're able to write into the history and into the archaeology an interpretation, a native interpretation that has not been present before. And this has now occurred with a couple of sites. You guys went out to bump heads and hopefully Hopefully, uh, Debbie has ideas for some more sites that uh, she'll be able to take us out to. And hopefully, as you were saying, some of the folks in Oklahoma that have this ancestral knowledge but haven't been able to share it in the appropriate terms, if they're willing to share it with us, we would be deeply grateful and incredibly honored to be given the opportunity to write it into the history. And I think that really gets to the point that these aren't just like archaeological sites or curiosities. These are cultural heritage places that are really deeply significant for tribal members. So how did you, you know, how did you choose which ones to, to focus on? We let the elders take us there. Yeah. The, the Wovoka site is especially powerful because it does have ramifications for all of Indian country, right? This is something that spread coast to coast, really. And um, it's also well-documented the route Wovoka took while he was uh, spreading that doctrine. And the first place he went after his own family and, and, you know, the Paiute community was to the Modoc people. And so if, if our elders are saying this records that moment, so it's not, that's history, that's, right? So it's yeah. not written in words, but it is written history and it's kind of undeniable. And so that's, a great representation of how all these other sites uh, fit as well. Maybe not so intrinsic to Indian country in general, uh, but for the Modoc people, what what the elders remember in conjunction with the technology and the research that's been done, the ethnography, you can kind of start to piece together the the real story. Often the the elders, the 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 verb, you know, the 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 stories they tell get left out of that of the science, and so that's part of the reason why I find this so amazing. The first thing we did after me getting hired was hire a Modoc descendant named Brian Herbert, and he has all the energy. He's the one driving all this stuff, and so I just would feel bad if I didn't shout out Brian because uh, his his ancestors lived on the land we now care for, and we're reviving from past ill use, but then he's also really taken on this cultural stuff as well. And thanks to our partners, we've been able to get some really cool stuff done like this. And I want to follow up on that idea of here is this um, this rock art that is um, recording history, history of Oregon history, you know, and so much of that um, tribal knowledge has been discounted or ignored by scientists. And I'd like to think archaeologists now are more aware of the value of all these other kind of knowledge. But that's another really important 
outcome of this project is really documenting these other, you know, uh, really important lines of evidence about the place that, um, you know, that we're working and living in. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge the comfort level of those descendants as well, the, and the knowledge holders. So it's going to take a lot of work. It has taken a lot of work to create the comfort level to be able to have those interactions so we can put piece together that larger story. Um, I think it's also, on the other end of things, important to realize that if that comfort level does not exist, that you're not helping it by moving forward with your actions. Um, it sh really should be at the ground level of the decision-making process of how you're going to interact with these sites uh, by the elders whose ancestors created them. If they don't want you out there, you shouldn't go out there. And if you are going out there, they should be with you or at least helping guide your decisions. Absolutely. And I imagine there's some things that will never be appropriate to be shared publicly That's or widely. Um, but that also, you know, this also being the 150th anniversary of this removal, I mean, this has also got to be painful for folks seeing these spaces for the first time and maybe, you know, what that brings up um, in that trauma. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a microcosm of this larger, like, what do you want? What, do, what, does, what does a Native community want? It's, we want to see the genocide undone and in the ecocide that accompanied it, it, we're still faced with to this day, and we're not alone, right, in, in trying to undo some of that, that, you know, but I think the the sites are, are really poignant examples of the memories, you know, we share, and people who have the eyes to see what things used to be like, and so it could be as simple as a, a tree, you know, but, you know, these sites are are powerful, but it extends well beyond that into the entire landscape. Yeah, and have you been focusing on like the the rock art and the site specifically, or but are you also kind of giving folks a sense of like the larger integrity, like the context within which those sites sit, so they get a sense of that? That's a really good question. So these sites are in the headwaters of the Lost River, the Lost River, and I'm gonna get into some st that the, the suckerfish issue, which many people are probably aware of. So the reason these sites are there is because the natural resources in the, in the land and waterways close by were plentiful, and including the suckerfish that people say you could literally walk across their backs in the riverway. They're completely gone now. And so what remains is the evidence of the people who were there, but we got to remember why they were there too. So that's an excellent question. So, and why, why I get paid to do what I do to try to address some of the issues that have arisen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's also within archaeology, the world that Dan and I are in, more specifically, there's archaeological sites, but then there's traditional cultural properties as well. So some of those don't have rock art or something that somebody would think more traditionally, but they still can have as much importance and weight um, to folks. So Dan, are you recording those kind of things or thinking about it that way? Um, yes, we are thinking about it, and we're trying to think about it and record it in the in the broader perspective that the... Um, 
the descendant community thinks of it. Uh, you know, as, as many people have pointed out, and Ken was saying just a little earlier today, I mean, when we go out to a place like the Wovoka site and the petroglyphs, you know, it's not just the rocks that are sacred. It's also uh, the grasses and the trees and, you know, the sky above us and everything. And so uh, that actually uh, ties into a little something else that we're working with um, on some of the lands that um, have been purchased by the Modoc Nation, the fee lands. Um, they've been creating a ranch and working on establishing a native seed production facility which is something that, um, you know, anybody that lives in fire country understands, you know, we need restoration and we need native restoration because it's, you know, it's happened for better or for worse, sometimes better, sometimes worse in the past. And if we have um, a partnership to help build these native seed production facilities, as Ken was saying, we can work on helping to try and undo the eco side that accompanied it. So it's it's definitely a more holistic perspective of the archaeological sites because, okay, you know, here's the archaeological site, and look, the rocks are still here, and look, the images are still on the rock, but the landscape around it has changed so entirely that the only way that we can do it best is to that we can interpret it best is to put it back to the place that it was. And by working with the Modoc Nation um, on this seed production facility, uh, we're, we're working on grants and partnership agreements and things like that. We're really hoping that we can bring it that step further so that we can uh, work to restore the larger environment of the site and the whole sacredness of the, of the greater area. And that's really where the success of the co-management comes in, I think, as well. Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and Ken Sandusky and Dan Brockman are joining me today to talk about the ways in which technology can connect people with significant places far away and how connections with those people is is giving information to you. I mean, we're learning so much about this. And and on that note, I kind of want to think about, you know, you're one region of the BLM, but is this project being recognized as, hey, this is a great model we could use on other districts? Or, you know, the BLM is just part of the traditional lands of the Modoc Nation. So there's other federal and other agencies that manage those lands as well. So are there um, conversations with those kind of folks about, hey, look how successful this is. Um, here's what we're doing and how it's working. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, that's something when we very first started um, on this project uh, with Ken and the Modoc Nation, um, one of the things that we really wanted to do as, as a show of faith and, you know, as Ken was talking about, to help build that trust and to help build that relationship was we worked really hard to establish a memorandum of understanding between the federal government and the Modoc Nation. And this includes not just the Klamath Falls field office, but our partners in the Applegate field offices and the Redding field offices. Um, so encompassing all BLM lands that are the Modoc ancestral tribal homelands have joined in on this so that we can take this that much further. So now if um, somebody in the Applegate field office or the Reading field office um, has something that's of interest to tribal elders and the Modoc Nation. We can go out and we can we can replicate this and create you know these guided tours 
um, for folks in Oklahoma that may not be able to get down into the area around the Applegate field office or the Reading field office. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're really trying to expand it out. And um, we know that's one of the reasons we're here today is to talk about this and really to encourage more partners to think about these collaborative relationships. And it's not so the government is uh, required legally to carry out government-to-government consultation with Native American tribes, but what we in the Klamath Falls Field Office and um, other, other offices as well um, are really pursuing with the idea of this co-stewardship and co-management isn't consultation. Consultation's a one-off. You know, you're in, you talk, you're done. Opinions recorded, ideas made, that's Bo- it. Box checked. Sometimes. Box checked. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. and that's that's unfortunately yeah. the case. Uh, not as designed. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Just say that. And yeah. what we need and what we're trying to build is collaboration. Mm-hmm. Collaboration is a relationship. You know, collaboration is is the hug that we give each other when we walk in the door. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the the handshake that we give each other as we say, "Yep, I heard you. I wrote it down. That's it. Box checked." You know, this is this is the thing that enables us to go and dig APOS together. This mm-hmm. is the thing that enables us to go out with Debbie Riddle and talk about the Wavoka site. Um, and we really would like to encourage more of our partners to pursue these relationships rather than just the, you know, checking the boxes. That That's the really important part is the example that's being set. There's a lot of challenges around capacity and all the rules and regulations that people have to deal with as federal or any public servants. Um, I think what we're seeing with the Klamath Falls field office is a prioritization of those interpersonal relationships that then lead to these innovative strategies. It might not be a good fit for another tribe, Mm -hmm. right? They might not want to do that, but... How are you going to know that? How do you know what they want when it's a one-way communication framework where we're going to cut down some trees on X plot of land and we want to know if you have any sites there? That's that's the normal collaborative or consultative discussion. And in this case, it's like, what can we do together? What do tribal members need? What are you comfortable with? Where can we go? So it's not going to be the same among 500 nations. Every nation is unique, but there is an ability to build those relationships and find what's going to work. And then that's when you get into true, true co-stewardship and co-management eventually if it works out right yeah yeah you need that trust not only to know that you're going to follow up with what you say but also that um folks that have a lot of emotions tied up to these stories and stuff they they're going to feel like you deserve to hear them you know you want to build that trust and make sure folks know yeah and i also i like your point too that there's other um, you know, regions and stuff, because we have so many arbitrary boundaries uh, now with not only within the BLM, state boundaries, all those different ways we divide up spaces that are not traditionally anything that made sense. So that gets to, to looking at the holistic, you know, the patterns, the seasonal rounds, how folks would have used these landscapes. The, the, the precedent that's being set is about challenging those boundaries, too. Yeah, It's about saying what's the right thing to do instead of using reasons not to do things, always looking for reasons not to do things. Yeah. And so just we're, we're wrapping up our, our this round of underground history, but Ken and Dan, thank you so much for joining me. And is there anywhere that people can like follow this project? Is there, I mean, 
Yeah, Ken? <laughs> uh, so the project for me is about helping these folks come home. It's about the investment they're making in the homelands. And we do tell that story through the Modoc Nation Facebook page. The, the, the archaeology stuff is sensitive. Yeah. So no, it's not going to be shared. Locations are not going to be shared. As a matter of fact, um, we're not going to be inviting people. This is all driven by what our elders are comfortable with. And then, of course, there are Modoc descendants who are members of the Klamath tribes as well. Mm -hmm. And so we're being very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So, no, we're not going to be sharing this. <laughs> Although, again, it, we're, we're taking a little bit of a risk in, in getting out there with this information because of what we're saying to encourage others to look for innovative approaches to building these relationships. Yeah, and you can um, hear Ken talking with host Jeffrey Riley on an earlier episode of the Jefferson Exchange, which we will link to in the show notes. Thank you. So thank you so much. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose. Our show is produced by Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman, and you can find this episode and many more wherever you get your podcasts.